Revelation 11. It is an interesting text. Let me remind you of the context, and then um, I'll go through the text. There are two basic ways this text is usually dealt with. Uh, I guess this is an obvious statement, but I will deal with it the way I will deal with it. But I will make reference at some point, if I don't forget, I make reference to a what I would term a secondary way of using the text. Uh, both ways of using the text, I think, in some ways teach the same spiritual truths. But I'm going to kind of give you what I think is a little bit more of a consensus way of looking at Revelation 11. Remember last week when we were doing chapter 10, I mentioned that chapter 10 and 11 through verse 14 of 11 is an interlude. Uh, We are between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. So we're still in the interlude. Uh, The interlude will end in chapter 11, which is what we're looking at this this day. Uh, It'll end at verse 15 when the seventh trumpet will be blown. And then we did look last week um, how chapter 10 made it pretty clear that the blowing of the seventh trumpet uh, inaugurates the end. And it becomes really obvious um, in chapter 11 that what you're seeing is uh, the end of history uh, from a Christian perspective. Uh, It's even a little more obvious when we get to chapter 12 next week. You're back at the birth of Jesus at chapter 12. So it's pretty obvious that you start back over in chapter 12. So here in chapter 11... Uh, we're, we're going to finish history. In some ways, chapter 11, particularly the way I will sort of offer it to you, is a picture of, uh, you could even say, the whole church age. Um, maybe the last of the church age, or the last of the last days. Remember, in the New Testament, the last days is a phrase uh, that begins with the work of Christ. So we've been in the last days now for 2,000 years according to the way the phrase is used, like in the book of Acts. So we may be looking here in chapter 11 at the last of the last days, but what's being presented in chapter 11 uh, is, um, particularly if you're trying to look at the spirituality of chapter 11, is presenting some tremendous, important, significant truths about who we are. Remember also, going back to last week, I mentioned that usually in these interludes that occur between the the unsealing of the seals or the blowing of the trumpets or the pouring out of the, of the bowls, these interludes uh, tend to be focused on us, on the church, people of Jesus in history, uh, and tend to tell us something about the people of Jesus in history. So let's look at chapter 11. Um, it, it may be, I mean, some people think it may be one of the most hard to interpret, one of the most confusing uh, parts of the book of Revelation. I, I don't know that I do. Um, I think if, if you'll just let the text sort of speak for itself and make sure that you're letting the rest of the Bible interpret this part of the Bible and make sure you let the clear truths of Scripture interpret what might be less clear on the surface, Chapter 11, I think, is fairly simple um, at what it's presenting, but I will offer you a little alternative version at the end. So chapter 11 talks about two witnesses. 
So, of course, as soon as you head to something like this, your first question is, who are the two witnesses? Um, just hold that thought for a moment. So let me read. Well, I'll just start at verse 1. Uh, verses 1 through 14 is the interlude. And then verse 15 is the blowing of the, and following is the blowing of the seventh trumpet. So look at 11.1. 1. This is this is a vision that John is participating in. This is a vision where John is given a task in the vision. And again, this is a vision, like all the book of Revelation, that's deeply, deeply, deeply steeped in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Um, which why it may be a little challenging to us, because sometimes we don't know the Hebrew Bible uh, as well as we should. Uh, but to John's first audience, they would have known the Hebrew Bible really well, because that would have been their Bible, their only Bible. So they, they understand this. So look at the text. Verse 1. Then I, I, John, was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So let's talk about that. Um, in, in the book of uh, Ezekiel, in the book of Jeremiah, you see the temple being measured. So from an Old Testament perspective, when you see the temple being measured, uh, the temple being measured by God is being measured um, for one of two reasons. For either protection, as a symbol of protection. You know, God knows the temple. God knows you. Uh, measuring the temple is something that symbolizes the protection of the temple. Sometimes it could mean the judgment of the temple, but the context here is very clear. It's about the protection of the temple. So John is given a staff, a measuring rod. He is told to rise and to measure the temple of God. Now the word temple there, there's two Greek words for temple, and it's clear in the text. The word temple there is naos, which means the temple proper not the area around the temple, not where the Gentiles will be around the temple. At any point when the temple existed, the temple, the area around the temple, Gentiles could go to, but the temple proper, Gentiles could not enter. So this is the measuring of the temple proper, because you notice that, because it says in verse 2, don't measure the court outside the temple. Uh, so the measuring is just the temple proper. So what is being symbolized by protection here is the temple proper. What's left outside the protection is the outer parts of the temple, um, which is the, is, is the place the Gentiles would be. And it says here in verse 2, don't measure that outer part of the temple, for it is given over to the nations, the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, let's talk about this a minute. If you remember your history, the temple is not standing in John's day, correct? Not yes. The temple's already been destroyed in Jerusalem. Uh, it's been destroyed for probably 30 plus years by the time John writes. 
There are a few scholars. I've got one acquaintance who's made his whole career writing about the book of Revelation. He's trying to date the book earlier than all the rest of us date the book. Uh, he tries to date the book before the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, but uh, it's very much consensus now that this book, these visions were given to John. This book was written down uh, in the 90s, which puts you 20 plus years after the fall of the temple. So the temple has been destroyed in Jerusalem. There's no physical temple at this point. So that should tell you we're not looking or talking about a physical temple at this point. There is no physical temple at this point. Um, you also should notice that in the New Testament, there are three other places, and those I just said other, there are three other places where the people of Jesus, you and me, are referred to as the temple of God now. So there's three places that we are called the temple of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians. Ephesians does the same does the same thing. 2 Corinthians does the same thing. The people of Jesus are called the temple, the temple of God or the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which that makes sense because the temple is where God dwells. God dwells in the midst of, in his people, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's New Testament language. So we're dealing with a symbolic temple here, a temple that doesn't stand in John's day. The alternate reading would say this is a temple that is rebuilt at the end of history. Um, maybe. Uh, I, that's not consensus view. It's not been the view of Orthodox Christians throughout most of our history. Uh, it's been a view that's arisen uh, in recent years that somehow this is a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. I think the chapter is very clear, and you'll see more of it, that we're dealing symbolically, we're dealing spiritually with significant spiritual issues here. So I think this is a spiritual temple being measured, and I'm, I know the book, the New Testament, the spiritual temple is us. So what, what I think you're seeing here, what consensus has generally been uh, throughout the history of the church is that what you're seeing here, what you've seen several times before, is the people of God will be protected. Measuring of the temple, measuring of the temple, if you're the temple. The people of God be protected for a period of time. You're given the period. Uh, there's going to be some people outside the protection, right? There's some people not within the measuring of this temple. There's that part of the temple he's told not to measure, for it's the one that's given over to the nations, given over to the Gentiles, is given over to the Gentiles, and this is an important number in a book of Revelation for 42 months. Sometimes you're told 42 months. Sometimes you're told three and a half years. Sometimes you're told 1,260 days. Same time frame. Same time frame. That's what you have here. So for this three and a half years, 1,260 days, 42 months, um, the proper temple will be maintained, protected, but the outside the temple will not be. What most of us think we see here is what you've seen over and over and over again, and I think it's going to get clearer as we continue through chapter 11, is just the vision given to John that says the church will be protected during the time of persecution, will be protected during the time of tribulation, will be protected while the nations are trying to trample the church. There'll be a part of the church protected, but there'll be something outside 
the protected part of the church, that part of the temple, the outer court that the nations will overrun. Uh, the historic, the more historic way of interpreting this is the protected part of the of the temple symbolizes the true Christian church, the true Christian people who will make it through whatever we're called to make it through. Uh, understanding and knowing and experiencing that we're kept in the palm of God's hand. But there'll be somebody outside that, outside the temple proper. Uh, Maybe that's the nominal church. Maybe that's the nominal Christians. Maybe that's people who are on the rolls, but they really don't belong to Jesus. They're not the true believers. They're the people that that are enjoying the nations. They're enjoying the uh, the rest of the world who wants to destroy the church. Uh, that area outside the protected area of the temple is that area outside uh, the, the, the true realm of the church where um, the, the, the people are, who are professing to be part of the church really are, par- are more part of the world than they are part of the church. So there's part of the temple protected and part of the temple not protected here. But the true temple, the naos, the inner court of the temple is being protected here for three and a half years, 42 months, 1,290 days, uh, 60 days. Um, that number is significant in the book of Revelation because it's significant in Jewish history. That three and a half year period, 1,260 days, um, or 42 months, that is the period that Antiochus Epiphanes um, from 162 to 165 uh, almost destroyed the temple, took over Jerusalem, sacrificed pigs in the temple, um, uh, made circumcision punishable by death. Uh, That's that period between the Testaments, which you don't know well because you don't read 1st, 2nd Maccabees, and you don't celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, But that's that's the period of Jewish history that occurred between the Testaments when Antiochus Epiphanes was uh, the worst ruler, at least up to that point, the worst ruler that the Jewish people could ever imagine. Uh, In the book of uh, Maccabees, there's this powerful story of of this mother being forced to watch her children being killed because they refused to renounce the Jewish faith. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to make Jerusalem into a Greek city. And that's why circumcision was outlawed. Keeping kosher was outlawed. He slaughtered pigs in the temple. Uh, So Antiochus Epiphanes was the absolute worst kind of ruler that the Jewish people can imagine. Uh, That's why you're going going to be introduced to the beast here in this chapter. Um, There have been many beasts that have come after the Jewish people. Uh, In some ways, spiritually, they are like a reincarnation of Antiochus Epiphanes because that was the worst they had experienced up to to, uh, the writing of what we call the New Testament. And, And he was able to do what he did for three and a half years. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. That's why that three and a half years is, is a significant period for the Jewish faith. Three and a half years is a long time, but only it is only three and a half years. Looking back now over 3,000 years of history, the years 162 to 165 don't seem that long. But if you were living through it at the time, it seemed long. So that's why uh, that, that, that three and a half year period, when compared, as is going to be in this very chapter, when compared to three and a half days, three and a half days is a short period. Uh, three and a half years is a longer period. Uh, but notice whether it's the days or the years, you're going to see the days in a few moments, it is a predetermined period with a beginning and an end. 
Uh, the Jews did suffer under Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, the Maccabees, um, by the way, uh, finally conquered uh, Jerusalem back and restored Jewish rule and reestablished and rededicated the temple, and that's what you celebrate at Hanukkah. But for three and a half years, Antiochus Epiphanes butchered and ruled and humiliated the Jewish people. So that's why the three and a half, and even the book of Daniel uses three and a half. That's, again, where the, where the number comes from. Three and a half years, 1,260 days, or 42 months. That's the phrase that comes from the book of Daniel, which is also based in uh, the persecution that the Jewish people dealt with under Antiochus Epiphany. So that, just if, to in, at least up to this point, in Jewish history, if you just said three and a half years, they would have rem- remembered those three and a half years when it was literally hell on earth for the Jewish people. So it's talking again about another three and a half years where the the temple will be being attacked, a spiritual temple, the real temple's gone at this point, is being attacked, but part of the temple will be protected, measured, set apart by God. Part of the temple will not be. Part of the temple will, will, will have to endure worse persecution uh, by, the, um, by whoever's coming at them. Okay, keep going. So this is looking at, I think, a period of, of church history where um, martyrdom is very common. We've had a lot of those periods, by the way, in church history. We'll have more of those periods in church history where people will be given their life for, for, for Jesus Christ. Remember, I've mentioned to you several times, because I don't want you to lose sight of this, more people died for their faith in Jesus Christ in the 20th century than any other century of Christian history. And I doubt the 21st century will be different. Um, the way we live here in High Point is not the way Christians around the world tend to live. And it's getting worse around the world. So look at verse 3 now. You go from just this statement about the three-and-a-half period, three-and-a-half-year period with the temple to these witnesses. And I will grant authority, he says in verse 3, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,060 days clothed in sackcloth. Well, what do you know that you know about that? Well, clothed in sackcloth or burlap, some modern translations just say burlap. That's, uh, again, got no Hebrew Bible here. To be clothed in sackcloth means you're preaching repentance, you're preaching penitence. You're calling people to repentance, which the whole book of Revelation will keep running into that theme. God is allowing this stuff to happen to call people to repentance and to return to God, to turn away from sin and turn to God. Uh, obviously, up to this point, people aren't turning in great numbers to God. Part of what you're going to learn in this text is the suffering of the church will have a greater impact on turning people to repentance than the, um, than the, than the plagues or than the judgment or than the wrath that's being poured out. So here's two witnesses that will be active during this period of persecution. Um, and they're preaching repentance. They're walking around in sackcloth. Now, of course, everybody says, who are the two witnesses? And of course, um, we should be smart enough to speak when Scripture speaks and be silent when Scripture is silent, but we aren't that smart. So throughout the history of the church, you know, the two witnesses have been everybody from um, um, Peter and Paul. Uh, they've been everybody from Elijah and Moses because those are the two that showed back up at um, the Transfiguration. They sort of stand for the prophets and the law. Sometimes people want them to be um, Enoch and Elijah, because Enoch and Elijah in Jewish tradition, you may know, those are the two people in Jewish tradition that never died. 
Uh, Enoch just walked with God and was no more. And Elijah was taken to heaven in the chariots. So those are two people that never died. So there, there's a lot in, in Jewish apocalyptic literature about before the end comes, Enoch and Elijah will return because they didn't have to suffer death. Um, and that may be true. It may be two specific nameable people, these two witnesses. Um, some people will say this refers to Jewish evangelists in the last days when there has been a, a rebuilt temple that they, they, they say will be rebuilt in the last days. That all may be true too. Consensus on this text is just like the temple at this point is the people of God, and the measured part of the temple are the people of God that's protected uh, during hard times. Uh, the two witnesses may simply just stand for, and you're, if you have a study Bible, you, you'll have about all these options I just named to you, but it'll eventually say the two witnesses may just stand for the people of God again, the people of Jesus Christ. Because, uh, remember, Jesus sent people out two by two to proclaim the gospel. Remember the book of Deuteronomy says that if you're going to witness to something, you have to have at least two witnesses or three. Uh, something's confirmed by two witnesses. You can't have just one. You, have, you can have two. So there's something about two witnesses in Jewish tradition being a witness that is valid. So, um, you know, you can accept all of what I just said. I'm not sure you lose anything. But the consensus teaching is this is talking about the church. These two witnesses refer to the church's ministry of witnessing. Do you know in the Greek the word witness and martyr is the same word? That should give you a little pause for a moment. Because throughout most of our history, to witness to Jesus Christ means about the same thing as being a martyr for Jesus Christ. And in the Greek, it's the exact same word. So what you see here, I think, is the church, the church in, 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 uh, in trial, in great tribulation, tribulation, great tribulation, or greater tribulation, being faithful witnesses in the midst of our great tribulation. And, of course, what are we doing as witnesses of Jesus Christ? We're calling the world, just like Jesus and John the Baptist did, we're calling the world to repentance. And just like Jesus and John the Baptist, we have a mixed success rate at calling the world to repentance, to turn to God and turn away from sin. Um, I think what I just told you, as far as interpreting the first paragraph, gets clearer as we go through the text. Look at verse 4. As, as, as the text tries to explain to you or talk to you about the two witnesses. Uh, these are the two olive trees. Well, you may not know who the olive trees are, unless you know the book of Zechariah. In the two olive trees uh, in the book of Zechariah is Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua was a, 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 a priest, and Zerubbabel was the ruler. But they were faithful. They were faithful to witnessing to God. So these two people are like Joshua, Zerubbabel. But they're not just Joshua and Zerubbabel because it says, and they're also the two lampstands. Well, I think the text is giving you a strong hint here. In chapters 2 and 3, when we're looking at the seven letters to the seven churches that came out of that initial vision at the beginning of the book of Revelation. I know so far back you don't remember. You saw Jesus walking among the lampstands, remember? And you were told at that point what the lampstands symbolized. Do you remember? The churches. The churches. So when, you know, when, when uh, commentators throughout the history of church says this is a picture of the church picture of the suffering church, a picture of the church uh, being persecuted, 
picture of the church in her witnessing ministry. We're not just making this up. The text really fits this. Uh, and it, it, you see more as you continue. So it's like an amalgamation. It's like a conglomeration, a mixing. So these two witnesses are Zerubbabel and Joshua, two olive trees. They're like the lampstands, you're told in Revelation 2 and 3, lampstands are just the churches that stand before the Lord of the earth. So again, I think just the people of Jesus before the Lord of the earth. Verse 5, and the amalgamation of the conglomeration continues, if you know your Hebrew Bible. Verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, would harm the witnessing people of Jesus Christ in the world, if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths and consumes their foes. There's a verse in Psalms that talks about the voice of God being like fire pouring from the mouth of God. Probably what's uh, in the memory here is Elijah, the prophet. Remember when the prophets of Baal came after Elijah uh, on Mount Carmel? Prophet, uh, prophet Elijah called fire down that consumed the altar to Baal and consumed the prophets of Baal. So there is precedent to, you know, you go after one of God's prophets, the fire shows up. Uh, that's Elijah. But notice it continues. So I think that's a reference. Elijah, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Um, if anyone would harm them, this, this, this is how he is to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky uh, so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Who is that from the Old Testament? That's Elijah. Elijah prophesied and stopped the rain in Elijah. But it's not just Elijah because it was just, um, well, the last is, it could be Elijah here, these two, but you had the two lampstands, you got the two olive trees, but the conglomeration, the amalgamation continues. Um, so these, these signs and wonders are being done by the witnesses of Jesus Christ as people try to come against, against them. But they also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So who's a person of God that had the power to do that? Moses. Yeah, you got that one because of Cecil B. DeMille. Moses <laughs> did that one. So you have this conglomeration here going on. There are the two olives. There are the two lampstands. There are Elijah. There are Moses. So it's pretty clear, I think, here in the text, don't look for two nameable individuals. This is a composite picture being given here. And it's a composite picture that we understand. Two witnesses that, that declares the truth. you got two. That declares the truth. The world's going to come at them. You're going to see in a minute what the world can do to them. The world's going to come at them. But uh, the, the people of God have signs and wonders. You know, we, we have the full armor of God. We have signs and wonders. Uh, we have a power that the world doesn't know about. And you see that being presented here as you're being reminded of Elijah and Moses. But look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, when their time of witnessing comes to an end, think historically, think big picture, and when their time of witnessing comes to an end, look what happens. When their time of witnessing comes to an end, when they have finished their testimony, the beast, first time you're introduced to the beast, you're going to learn a lot about the beast from this point on out. The beast rises from the bottomless pit. And you have been introduced to the bottomless pit before, right? You should have a little study note that says that's the abyss. The bottomless pit, you've already been introduced. That's the, that's the underworld. That's the place where evil resides. That's where the locusts came out of earlier. Uh, here it's, it's where the beast comes out of. 
you know, it's coming out of the pit of hell, if you will. The beast comes out of the pit of hell. We have a lot of opportunities to talk about who this beast uh, she called to mind here. So the beast comes out of this bottomless abyss pit, and they will make, and this beast will make war on them. Will make war on the witnesses of Jesus, on the people of God, on the witnesses, on the church. I think it's just the church. The beast will make war against the church. And then, this is a little disconcerting, but not unusual. We have precedence for this. We'll make war on them and conquer them and kill them. No any prophets have ever been killed by the powers that be. Of course. Of course. Um, and not only do they kill them, when evil does its work, they, they are not satisfied with just killing the prophets, the people of God. They, they want to humiliate which the powers of this world are good at that. Think about crucifixion. What's the point of crucifixion? Not just execute a criminal, but to humiliate a criminal. And you see here that when the powers that be, the powers of this world, uh, come at the people of Jesus, they're not satisfied with just killing them. But don't, don't let the story end here. Uh, they're not satisfied with just killing them. Uh, they do worse. Verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street and here you're going to see another amalgamation of the great city. In the book of Revelation, great city always means Rome. That's an amalgamation of the great city that, and John's helping you here. The next word in my translation is that symbolically. Your translation may say spiritually. Maybe your translation says figuratively. Um, so the text is reminding you, you're dealing with symbols here. You know, you couldn't be told that ain't clearer here. So the great city, which is normally Rome in the book of Revelation, that symbolically called, is called Sodom. Well, that's another city. And Egypt, and that's still yet another country where the Lord was crucified. Well, where's that? That's Jerusalem. So this great city is somehow a conglomeration, symbolically, spiritually, figuratively, of Sodom. And we know what Sodom sort of symbolizes in biblical literature, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom, it's a mixture of Sodom, Egypt. Egypt, those are the people that, you know, enslaved the children of Israel. And you know all this, that's will be the mill part. And the city of Jerusalem, the city that killed Jesus. So the great city is this amalgamation of these cities. So again, if you just kind of are satisfied with the spiritual interpretation, it's pretty clear what's going on here. The powers of this world... Remember, the New Testament says the devil is the god of this age. The powers of this world are coming at the people of God, coming at the witnessing church. They, it's, at times, it looks as if it looks as if they have conquered and killed the witnessing church. And I want you to know something here to kind of show you that the text, you know, as, as we've done this over the years of Christian teaching, we're not just making this up. Back at the beginning of verse eight. This is, this is fun, and this is why it's good to know the original languages. At the beginning of verse 8 where it says, and their bodies will lie on the street. The word bodies there really should be singular. It's really just body. Now, your English translation doesn't say that because it doesn't make sense that two witnesses are killed and their body lies in the street. Spiritually, it makes perfect sense with what I'm saying. We're the body of Christ. The two witnesses are standing for the church and her witnessing ministry being persecuted by the powers that be in this world. So at this point, it says their corpse. That's what it says literally in the Greek. One body, their corpse. 
So if you're reading this in Greek, as the first people who read this were, they would see the singular there. So they probably, it would not be hard for them to see the amalgamation being the church, the amalgamation being the evil in this world coming at the church, and what happens when that happens. Um, and they, they appear, the evil of this world appears to win. Think about the day of the crucifixion. The enemy appears to have won. But look at verse 9. For three and a half years or days? Days. Not years at this point. This is days. This is a short period of time. Um, and you know something else about three days. Does that ring a bell in your mind? For three and a half days, some, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, again, that amalgamation of the powers that are arrayed against the people of Jesus, for three and a half days, a brief prescribed period, some, some from all these people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead, here it's plural, dead bodies. So, you know, the author's not confused. It's singular the first time he says it's plural here because I assume you know that the church, the body of Christ, is singular, but we're made up of a lot of different members. It's almost as if the Greek here is reminding you we are both a body made up of bodies. Here it is, bodies. So all these people are gazing at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Um, that's the height of humiliation in the Jewish world. For both Jews and Christians, the burial of the dead is an act of mercy. Uh, read the book of Tobit, if you want to read something out of the Apocrypha, and quite a bit of the space of the book of Tobit is about how humiliating, how disrespectful and degrading it is to not bury someone. But uh, the world hates the church. They refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth, remember I said the earth dwellers, that's almost a technical term in the book of Revelation, the people who are against the purposes of God, and the earth dwellers will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those earth dwellers. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we get on their nerves. Remember Amos was called the troubler of Israel because he was a prophet. He was troubling Israel. Uh, Jeremiah never had a good day. He was called the weeping prophet because he never told the people what they, what they wanted to hear, nor the rulers. So they're dead now, these, these troubling, tormenting prophets who are always calling people to repentance. and you know they, They're dead now, so everybody's having, the earth dwellers are having a good time. But, look at verse 11, but after three and a half days of breath of life, breath and spirit are the same word in Greek. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, such as took place at Sinai with the giving of the law, and such as took place at the resurrection of Christ, according to the Gospel of Matthew. There was a great earthquake. So what do you think that symbolizes? The church looks dead, but at the end, guess what? Yeah, we win. And the world knows that. We win. Um, but what I want you to see here, and this is where it really gets exciting from this point on, and you're going to hear some familiar language here. As a result of the suffering of the church, as a result of the resurrection of the church, notice what happens. Now the plagues, the torment, the wrath has not had a lot of success at calling people to repentance, right? 
up to this point. You've been told that multiple times in the book of Revelation. But look at this, verse 13 again. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Nine-tenths didn't. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's almost code language for repented. So you've got um, all but 7,000 people repenting. So it almost looks as if the suffering, martyrdom, and then glorification of the church cause more people to repentance um, than anything else can call people to repentance. Well, even if that's not what you think you see here, that is true, what I just said. The suffering martyrdom of the church is more effective at witnessing to the world uh, than, than anything else. So this is the end of history being presented here. This is the end of history. Um, I think it's obviously the end of history because keep reading. The second woe has passed. Remember the three woes, the three terrors that the eagle announced? The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe has come. And you're going to know exactly what this woe is. Look at verse 15. You're going to know exactly what the seventh trumpet is, which we talked last week is the last trumpet. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Where are you used to hearing that at? Handel's Messiah. So yeah, we, we, this is the end. This is when the church has done the church's work. The world has done the worst the world can do to us. But we prevail, and the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Yeah, Handel got it right. This is about the end the climax from a Christian point of view. Now, King James sort of messed it up a little bit, by the way. If you have King James in front of you, or the new King James, it says the kingdoms, plural, of this world has become the kingdoms, plural, of our Lord and His Christ. Well, the Greek doesn't say that, and it shouldn't say that. It needs to be singular for important reasons. The kingdom, because the kingdom of this world is one kingdom. It's all the powers of the world arrayed against the purposes of God. That's why the New Testament, that's why Jesus could call um, uh, Satan the God of this age. Paul could call Satan the prince of the power of the air. Uh, That's the kingdom of this world. And it's not going to be replaced by kingdoms. Plural, it's going to be replaced by one kingdom. The kingdom of God is going to replace the kingdom of this world. Again, you've seen the amalgamation of the powers of evil coming, you know, Egypt, Sodom, Jerusalem. You, you see the amalgamation of the power of evil is coming at the, at the people of God. Elijah, Moses, uh, Zerubbabel, Joshua, however you want to do it, you see, you see the powers of evil coming at the power of God or the work of God in the world. Uh, but the kingdom of this world, and it's really, it's really pretty united. I don't care if it's coming out of Washington or Moscow or Beijing. The power of this world is pretty united in its anti-God forces, and the kingdom of God is, is, is united against that. So this is obviously the end, when the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You know where my favorite place to see that quotation is? You may not realize it's there. If you ever go to Westminster Abbey, where the monarchs of England are crowned, guess what's above their head? That verse. Do we just happen to remind those monarchs, because we're getting crowned there at Westminster Abbey Church, 
Uh, the church wants to remind the monarchs, yeah, you might be getting a crown, you may be being, you know, going through a coronation, but just look up and make sure you read that, that there will come a time when the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Uh, it is engraved from King James's plural up there, but um, point still the same. Um, you know, all the king, the kingdom of this world will one day just there will just be one kingdom, the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. So I think that's significant. You know, I'm sure at some point, I'm I'm sure at some point they're gonna get a new monarch. I know she seems she'll never die, <laughs> but I'm sure at some point they're gonna get a new monarch in England. Uh, I, take note when when the new monarch, I guess it will be he, when when Charles is crowned. You probably can't see it, but that's why it's engraved above the arch there in the chancel of Westminster Abbey is this verse from the book of Revelation. Verse 16, you've met these people before. And the 24 elders, we, they go way back to chapter 4. That symbolizes the church, the people of God in heaven. The 24 elders sit on the thrones before God, fell on their faces. They worship God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. And watch this. Who is and who was... Now, from throughout the book of Revelation, you expect it to say something else right there, don't you? And who is to come? That's what you've heard thus far. You've heard who is and who was and who is to come. Well, the who is to come is not here now, right? Because he's come. This is a picture of the end. So we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power. God is sovereign now, but God is not exercising all of God's power now. There are other forces at work in the world. I assume you know that. There are other forces at work in the world. There will come a time when God will take all of God's power. God will take back what is rightfully God's. And the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. But this is celebrating that day. For you have taken your great power and you've begun to reign. What it means to be Christian today is we are those who let Jesus reign in our lives now. We let Jesus reign rule in our hearts now. There will come a time he will take all of his power and he'll rule and reign in all the universe. We're those who are already bending the knee and doing homage to the true monarch now. But he's begun to reign. The nations raged. This is Psalm 2, by the way. The nations raged, but your wrath come, uh, came. And the time for the dead to be judged. Again, this is the end. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants the prophets and saints and those who fear or reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Dead will be judged, the good will be rewarded, the faithful will be rewarded, the destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. This is a hymn that the church is singing in heaven. And look how it ends. And this sets the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation. Then God's temple in heaven. Remember, you're dealing with symbolic temples at this point. The temple's gone in Jerusalem. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. You get a lot of details about the temple in heaven uh, in, in chapter 20, 21, 22. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen. Within the temple, the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the presence of God to the Hebrew people. Uh, where's the Ark of the Covenant now? We don't know, unless you're Indiana Jones. We don't know <laughs> where the Ark of the Covenant is. It, was, it has not been seen since Babylon destroyed the first temple. You know, maybe Jeremiah took it with them to um, uh, Egypt. Maybe Jeremiah got it buried underneath the Temple Mount. There are people who swear to that, uh, but you can't dig there today without a, a lot of problems. Um, 
maybe, and this is probably maybe what happened, the Babylonians took it and melted it down and used that gold for something else. But the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant is lost, except we know where it's at. You know, one day symbolically we'll see the symbol of the Ark of the Covenant in heaven because it symbolizes where God is. And so heaven's open. You see the Ark of the Covenant. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. That's all just sort of symbolic of a theophany. You're seeing God in God's majesty. So this sets the stage for the rest of the book. In chapter 12, verse 1, you're back at the birth of Jesus. So we get to go through this whole scheme again um, to make sure that we know how history plays out and how history ends. So... Thank you for being here. Make sure you meet someone in the room that you don't know. Uh, make some new friends. Remember, if you ever miss lunch here, we're upstairs in Circle View at 645, and we talk about this text. Uh, but go in peace. Make some new friends.